the mechanistic views are falling apart. And I see this all the time in my work with leaders because the speed of things is so much cranked up relative to years ago that control does not work as well as it used to. Without a doubt, a fact in my own experience is that my students learn more when I'm still learning. If we think a mechanistic view is going to work, in a world where a mechanistic view has is, has destroyed it, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. We are in partnership with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Dr. Ginny Whitelaw. Ginny is the founder of the Institute for Zen Leadership. She's a Zen master in the Chosenji line of Rinzai Zen as well as the president of Focus Leadership. She's a fifth degree black belt in Aikido, and her background is particularly interesting and falls in line with many of the conversations we've had on this podcast, starting perhaps with Jeremy Lent, as well as some of the blogs we've written, this curiosity about how science and ancient wisdoms come together. Ginny is a doctor in biophysics, and she worked 10 years at NASA in the space station program, and she received NASA's Exceptional Service Medal for all her efforts there. Jenny's expertise, knowledge, and experiences, as well as kindness, really help us bridge the ancient wisdoms with contemporary science, especially in the quantum. If you like this uh, podcast, leave five stars, subscribe, and in the meantime, I will leave space for my conversation with Jenny. Well, hi, Jenny. I'm really uh, excited to have you on our show. Uh, you come from uh, um, a background that is quite interesting to, to us and, and hopefully our podcast listeners. Uh, those who have been listening to the show know that we're really interested recently in, in bringing quantum mechanics and ancient wisdom. And I came across your article in Forbes uh, last month uh, and would love to get your views um, fr from your perspective coming in um, uh, from, from more of a, of a Zen leadership point of view, but that would really enrich the conversation when it comes to education and learning. But I'll ask you first thing before we get into those uh, matters, who are you, what are your passions, and how do you try to make a difference? Thank you. And it's good to join you, Benjamin. Um, well, in, in a conventional sense, I'm a scientist. I, I was a physicist by training, a biophysicist in my, in my doctoral work. Got very interested in the body and the energy of the human body and how mind and body work together. And that really took me um, in a number of directions, including into the martial art of Aikido, which led me into Zen. So I am also now a Zen teacher. Uh, for the last 25 years, I've been bringing that kind of embodied learning into leadership development. So I've taught leaders all over the world. And in that process, I've written four books. Um, so you could say I'm all those things, but in a truer sense, I'm none of those things. So <laughs> none of those things really define me. Um, one, of the, one of the real uh, freedoms of Zen training is how it can blast through our ordinary notions that separate us, that make us feel like a separate thing, and or blast through dualism, as we might say. And that, um, that I feel is such a crucial opening in education, in leadership, in how people can feel into their interconnectedness today. So that's a huge passion of mine is how people can connect with that connectedness, that they uh, feel into the broader sense of who they are, not just the local or differentiated sense, but the universal sense, that they can act out of that connected wisdom. That's brilliant. And uh, I'm really interested in getting your view specifically on, on, this, on the interconnection, the, the, these pieces about how that 
creates uh, an environment in which we, we not just learn, but also to act. But before we get there, I'll ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, how do you define learning? You know, Benjamin, that's a great question because in my years, <laughs> I, uh, I've seen learning at three different levels. And the first level is what I call the conventional learning in the head level. It's what I went to school for. When I was going to school, I was filling my head with all kinds of stuff from physics formulas to philosophy, to German, to every, you know, all, all kinds of studies. So learning in the head is what I call the first level of learning. But as, as I've already explained, it, something deeper starts to emanate where you feel a deeper kind of learning in the physical body, a kind of embodied learning, or you know, that's why we can speak about multiple intelligences, for example. There's a deeper kind of learning that can take place in the body where we can start to, and the body is what's gonna hold things in place for the long run. So there's a kind of knowing in your bones that starts settling in. And then in Zen training, what we're really cultivating is a third level of, it's almost hard to call it learning, but it's almost like intuition, a kind of in, unconscious intuition, this sense of connectedness with, with all things. This third sense connects us with our whole self, our true self. And that kind of learning in a way is unlearning erroneous thoughts. And then what's left is our pure nature. Or suchness. One of the things that, that I found fascinating recently, and, and as I'm exposed to, uh, from a non-scientist point of view, quantum mechanics at a very layman level, uh, and, and having been uh, into yoga for, 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 for a few years and, and knowing, you know, enough about ancient wisdoms and, and, and Buddhism to, 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 you know, to have a conversation, um, is that, you know, Buddhism and, and many of these traditions are, let's just say, 2,500 years old, but, but they also have so many connections with First Nations cosmogonies and, and things that are even way older than, than 2,500 years old. Oftentimes when we bring up these, these, these ideas, and, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you also to introduce a little bit what Zen is, but oftentimes when, when people hear this, they think, oh, it's very woo-woo, it's all spiritual. But what's fascinating is bringing in the science behind it, some of the discoveries that have happened in science over the last, say, 100, 120 years that really, I don't want to say prove, but certainly complement this idea of interconnectedness that the ancient wisdoms have come in. Could you maybe give us a little bit of an intro as to what Zen is and, and how that unfolds, the history, and then bringing in the science? And I'm asking you probably to do something that you could write four more books on, but uh, uh, maybe in a few minutes. Let's start with what Zen is. Uh, Zen is to resolve, we say dualism, which makes it right there sound, oh, philosophical, but no, it's physical training that changes the mind. It's, it's putting into the body a kind of opening that lets us resonate with the universe. I'll put it that way, so that we can, we get out of our own way. And what do I mean by getting out of our own way? That it's completely natural and human that we have an ego. We would be psychotic without one. And yet the ego um, gets wholly confused about it, it, it's in a way, it's an identity thief, you know, it, it steals our identity and makes us think we're a lot more small and limited than we are. And that sense of self makes us feel separate from others. So I feel separate from you, or it also fills us with a certain kind of existential anxiety about birth and death and what's going to happen after I die. And, and in, that, in that sense of separation, fear and greed and taking care of myself all grows. And that condition describes conventional life. 
<laughs> That's basically what we're, you know, what, what people are doing. Look out for number one, or even if they're altruistic, they feel good about themselves if they take care of other people, you know, or, or maybe a little bit superior because they can take care of this or that. This sense of how we inadvertently serve ourselves is part of the, the uh, difficulty that we then put into our own lives and perpetuate to others. This is very human, and this has been written and talked about for 2,500 years, as you said earlier. Uh, what is beautiful, though, is that we can also see through it, that the human being is equipped with a consciousness that can penetrate consciousness. That is remarkable, and there is a way to do that. And that, again, has been part of the tradition that has been passed down um, in, in many traditions where we can sense not just our separate nature, but our interconnected nature, where we can see our ego, but not just be our ego. And, you know, you and I, we have the experience our whole life of learning how to grow up, where we sort of peel away from an earlier stage of development, where we were maybe wholly attached to our ego as kids. And then maybe we learn a little bit of empathy, where we can start to feel into what it is to be another person or to feel into the state of another person. At that point, we've been able to make a little bit of separation. And that sense of, that sense of being able to not be 100% wholly identified with our ego can grow and grow and grow until it pops through to a point where the ego becomes a tool in service of our whole self rather than a tyrant trying to use the whole picture to serve itself. So it flips around, it inverts. Zen is the pathway by which, uh, one of the pathways by which that opening, that inversion occurs. Now, where this connects to science is that through this whole tradition, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or indigenous wisdoms, um, people have been trying to understand what is going on. You know, what is this? What is this about? And the scientific way of understanding it, um, going way back to Aristotle, is to separate subject and object, to be objective. Right there, right at that foundation, you're buying into a delusion. <laughs> but, but there's a lot you can still study that way. And there's a lot of knowledge you can build up that can pass from generation to generation. So I love science. But you have to understand that it, can it will only go so far. And what's wonderful is that since the 20th century, it's gone far enough to see its own limitations. And this is what I mean by it, where that subject object distinction has itself been drawn into question, where ordinary notions of causality have its, themselves been drawn into question, where this sense of separateness, where I can divide things up to study it has been drawn into question. And that is so important. That, so, where you know the science used to feel like the science the scientist was a completely objective observer of their experiment we now know that the scientists can affect their experiment by their own intentionality and their own energy we also know much more about the um the building blocks of things. That was the way we used to think about it. What is this made of? And we break everything down. Well, as soon as you start breaking things down, you lose system properties. So you're losing something, but you know, we ignored that for a long time. But in the 20th century, we realized we couldn't ignore it. We got a bigger picture of the fields. Um, there was a quest since 
uh, since Einstein for what we call a unified field theory that unites the kind of forces we know affect us, affect all of matter, you know, gravitational forces, electromagnetic, strong and weak nuclear forces. What unites, what explains these things? Well, when we try to break things down, break things down, we get to a point where we could say, you know, this, this is made up of that, that's made up of smaller parts, this is made up of smaller parts, you get down to atomic particles and subatomic particles, and then you're at wavicles, you know, you're at things that aren't particles at all that behave like waves. Whoa, that should blow people's minds that you can't get down to building blocks. And in fact, even um, you know the recent best effort at a theory of everything, string theory itself has fallen apart from kind of a building block model of trying to say everything is made up of these micro vibrating strings. No, what's emerging is that there is one thing going on, a, a creative essence or a creative matrix out of which form emerges. Forms that take form of energy, forms that take the form of matter. Some when when energy is stabilized for a period of time, we give it a name, you know. <laughs> so we call it something, <laughs> and uh, so we thingify it. So we 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 think we're something, and we make something out of the things around us. And both of those are basic inversions. They're basically a conventional way of looking at things, but they fool us. In reality, there's one thing going on. And even space and time itself is an emergent property of that one thing going on. And this is the part also that lends into the ego, that we have to construct our own sense of time and space in order to be able to cope with the realities. But that in itself is just, is not reality at all, our sense of time and space. That's right. That's right. And in fact, you know, there's never been a physics experiment that shows time flowing because time doesn't flow. It's always now. I mean, if you notice, it's always now. But we have memory. We, so we have a psychological experience of time. We have future projection ability. So we have an, a mental ability for time. Even our psychological a relationship to time changes depending on our temperament or our mood or whether we're having a good time or a bad time, right? All of that is true. Um, but we think time is something out there that we're marching through. And now I'm going to walk on some on some uh, some thin ice here because uh, you know this is this is something that's pushing me, and I'm learning about it as well. But for for me, it's this Newtonian idea of a of a mechanistic flow of time where there is a t, a universal time t, and that has been shown to be not necessarily actually to be incorrect, but. If we bring it back to schools a little bit, uh, and, and I'm probably going to get at a very granular level here, a lot of the schools, and this is what you were talking about, the first level of learning, a lot of schools think about that mechanistic way of teaching. I do something and there's a causality, there's an effect that you learn it and therefore you move out in the world. But going with what you're saying, that necessarily doesn't exist because of this, this creative essence, but more to the point, we can't control the world in that mechanistic point of view if we look at science and going back to ancient wisdoms. Yeah, it, it, you're really touching on such an important point, Benjamin. Um, the mechanistic point of view is simple, you know, it, it, and it, there's a reason why that could come out in the 17th century. And it took a few more centuries before a relativistic view could emerge from Einstein, right? Before we could start to see frames of reference. And that, that's a much more sophisticated way of thinking. And you only really need it to explain experimental results when you're looking at phenomena near the speed of light. 
in the conventional world, like at the speed of a podcast, you can you can think mechanistically. You know, you that it reduces good enoughness, you know, to that at that level. But in truth, what is happening uh, and what I see happening in our world is that the mechanistic views are falling apart. And I see this all the time in my work with leaders because the speed of things is so much cranked up relative to years ago that control does not work as well as it used to. And in the individual control only works in a very stable, slow-moving environment where I can do something and have a reasonable expectation of an outcome without too many, quote, unintended consequences. But the more intermeshed things are, the more complex, the more sped up and technologically uh, supercharged they are, the more there are interactions between people and things and internets and social media that make everything much more complex. Uh, this environment's been characterized as volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, you know, for decades now. That's the environment that we're schooling people to go into, that we need to be schooling people to go into. It's not a simple mechanistic view anymore. It is a much more dynamic, shifting, changing. And what we know in what I see in leadership development that has really emerged over the last, I've been in this field more than 25 years now. In the early years, there was a real emphasis on how you can get multiple points of view in decision-making like paradox management and things like that. So you could run global organizations because global organizations really brought that complexity of the world into themselves. And so leaders had to cope with a lot more choices that were not either or, but both and, you know, how do I do what's right for the, the global economies of scale, but is right for my customer right here in Thailand or right here in Peoria, you know, what do I do that is um, both good for people and good for the environment? People had to start thinking in more complex ways. And when they do that, what you recognize is you need multiple points of view. So you start shifting from just the solo heroic leader to a more consensuous driven um, environment, more teamwork, more um, how we see things from different points of view and get to emergent wisdom. That way of thinking needs to come into the schools too. It can't just be solo efforts where uh, I figure out everything on my own and, uh, but rather how, how do we cooperate in ways that we get to greater system solutions rather than just um, local solutions as, as an example. So the, this, um, this sense of learning for a, a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world should change our ways of learning. And one of the things I've learned as a teacher, and this surprised me, but, I, but it is, without a doubt, a fact in my own experience is that my students learn more when I'm still learning. So if I were to position myself as a know-it-all and I'm just dispensing wisdom, no, there's something flat and linear in that. But if I'm in it with them, learning and, and putting myself on the line at the same time and stretching myself, something can happen in that room that is much more powerful. And here we're fighting against culture, we're fighting against tradition, 
We're fighting against leaders who may or may not have egos. I mean, there, there's no one character profile of, of, of a CEO, but, but some of them may or may not have a bigger ego or may or may not be resistant. I imagine that if they're in conversations with you, they're not going to be completely resistant, but nevertheless, they might have some skepticism. In schools, leadership in schools, teachers also might have resistance. And even the students themselves, when they're not used to that kind of way of thinking, might question a little bit. What are some of the strategies that you have or that you have found works to get them to embrace this idea of interconnectedness over control? The, with the leaders I work with, um, and the pause you're hearing in my voice is that, I, is that it really depends on the stage of development. You know, when we think about schools and learning, we're really dealing with people at every stage of child development, right? So you can't teach a a six-year-old the same way a 16-year-old, you know, and so I don't want to suggest it's as simple as one size fits all. It's not. Uh, even in working with leaders, they, the, the model that I find successful is start where they are, it, or as one of my Zen teachers said, and I love this advice because it has really helped me in good stead, become the other, go from there. So you put yourself in that mindset, where they are, what's their pain point, what are they struggling with? Where are they at? What are they ready to move? Uh, and lead people in a way they're able to move. That, that's also a principle that, that comes out of, out of my work in Aikido. I, as I mentioned, this kind of embodied learning is not, it's not just intellectual. When you do martial arts, especially Aikido, which is a very partnered martial art, which is literally translates as the way to harmonize energy, you're always sensing What's the direction someone is actually physically able to move? Because if I try to move someone in a direction they can't move, there's too much resistance. You know, and so you translate psychologically that same phenomenon into the classroom. What are these students ready to do? Where, where are they ready to go? And how can I stretch them to get there? That's, that's the principle. Then, then what, um, what you can introduce in that learning are ways of opening up their thinking so that they can start to see things a little fresh, a little new. And what does that do for them? I'll, I'll quote Einstein here. He said, you know, problems can't be solved at the same level we were at when we created them. So we have to be able to see things new. So once they, if they see what problems they're struggling with, when they can see things new, they have an angle on them. They have a new way to approach them. And whether they're they're young kids trying to figure out, you know, uh, how to how to do carryover math, or whether they're they're older kids uh, trying to figure out how to work in a in a world or inherit a world that's burning up. You know, what can they do? Um, they've got they've got a sense of how they can move forward with this, and you know how they could. Um, uh, band together, how they could use what they know and apply new kinds of pressure or something together that will, just as, as young people are doing now, raising the consciousness of the world in terms of, of uh, how we need to take care of people and the planet in a new way. I mean, my goodness, look at the world that young people are growing into. Wow. If we think a mechanistic view is going to work, in a world where a mechanistic view has, is, has destroyed it, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. We, we bandy around this idea that 
in schools right now we have individualized assessment and there's you know so many assessment crazy cultures but we ask straight straight up why do we have to assess people individually why can't we think about the contributions that the group can 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 make towards the world towards a problem towards something in their community and the community could be global it could be uh you know just just our street have you in your experience in in um in in, in the non-school world found that um that that there's a way to bring people together and 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 really reflect on on the impact they have but also not just the impact they have but breaking down um the duality between um say a group and maybe what they're trying to affect uh, i guess what i'm trying to say is is have you seen any transformations that people have said okay we are maybe one group or maybe a company or maybe a team but they've really seen the connections with what they've impacted and and how that has led to, to transformations within their dynamics yeah yeah there's been a lot of research on high performing teams or teams in flow or flow or the movements out of positive psychology that have looked at questions like this benjamin where they, people notice that there's a kind of resonance that can come about in a group where we get on not only get on the same wavelength but the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts you know we we can do something that no individual could do that that uh, has been documented in you know going way back to the wisdom of teams decades ago of and and in countless studies since then also the personal joy that people take when they're on a team like that is unbelievable you know they there it's like a life-changing experience to be on a team like that where where we uh, we could do something i could never do and the love that develops the caring for each other the having each other's back what's beautiful about those teams is that they speak to the paradox of being human which is that we are individual and we are social animals and we are part of we are interconnected so when we get to live out all of those roles there's something big that comes out when we only get to be an individual self you know that there's a, there there's there's going to be uh limitations to that limitations to what the, you know these two eyes can see these ears will hear these perceptive filters will admit as new data you know there's going to be limits to that and if nothing counters those limits then they're just going to they're 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 going to uh you know define what that individual can do so i think the emotional aspect of the emotional experience of the individual as well as the results that come from these high performing teams would argue that there's something there's a very special thing that can emerge from that chemistry um that said again it it is it is a paradox which means there's truth on both sides there's value in individuals knowing what they're good at you know i i really support assessment from a point of view of personal development and um personal insight knowing my gifts knowing where i can play that's helpful um the, the you know we've developed an assessment that we use um in our, in our work with leaders that integrates body and mind around four basic energies that function in the nervous system and they they show up in our temperament and our leadership behaviors but we can also physically move into different energies as we need them that's really helpful assessing what ones i might use habitually and having an awareness of my blind spots that can help people see how to grow you know see how to move forward on the other hand um the uh, the assessments that will purely um 
uh, have, you know, bring, break people into, uh, I'll say different categories of you can go to this school because you scored this amount on this test or something like that. I think um, that certainly applied in my age when I was growing up, but it feels less relevant all the time. I, I have to say in, again, in the kind of world we're growing into, it's hard to go from a test to say, um, who can make a contribution in this world? Tell us a little bit maybe about some of the things that are on your mind. Uh, what are the, the, the projects that you might have, the, the, uh, the challenges that you're, that you're wanting to face? What, what, what is in your thinking? What is in, in, your, in, your, in your feeling and in, in your direction? Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. I'm, I, it would go back to the, the sense of the relationships of people in the planet. I have to say that coming into right relationship with people on the planet is the work of this time. If we don't do it, if we don't do it in the next generation or two, it will be too late. It will be too late. And yet there's so much convention and weight behind old ways of doing things that grew out of mechanistic learning and mechanistic ways of doing stuff. But my, my passion is in looking at what we might call permaleadership, leadership that can follow the principles of nature or permaculture to how can we create a planet that thrives for all people, you know, that all people thriving on the planet. Um, the, and what that will cost call for is an inversion of a lot of our conventional ways of thinking and learning. An inversion where instead of valuing profits over people, we value people over profits. Rather than extracting whatever we can get, we think about how to work um, cyclically and in harmony with the forces around us. Rather than using people up, we figure out how we can have relationships of mutual benefit. This kind of inversion also calls for inner work where we ourselves invert our ordinary ways of looking at things, which takes us back to Zen training and the genuine experience of interconnectedness. When we can have that experience, then we can approach the work of our time with stamina and with wisdom, with that intuition, which I called the deepest level of learning that allows us to sense how to serve the whole picture. That's the kind of consciousness that we as humans are being called to, to come to. And if we don't, if we don't, we won't destroy the planet, but we will destroy its ability to support human life. And this goes back to what you're saying about that duality, that Cartesian duality between mind and body and, and, and spirit. And, and, and what you're saying is that it's actually when we, when we unify those that we can learn best, especially as we connect with others and not just humans, right? Any kind of life form. That's right, that's right. That's right. A, a planet honoring all of our relations, as the wisdom of the indigenous peoples would say. We have to honor all our relations. Are you writing a fifth book? Not right now. Not right now. <laughs> I'm, uh, um, but I'm teaching out a, a, a course on Resonate and really bringing out this idea of how we can vibrate with, and, and uh, which is what resonance is, vibrate with the forces around us. And in that, in that process, play into our own our own uh, purpose, our own significance in being here now. Um, I'll ask you two more questions. One is, what are you reading right now? We're trying to build our library. Building library. Well, I, uh, you mentioned Carol Sanford earlier. That's one of the books I'm reading, The Regenerative Business. Also, I'm reading some of the ancient um, uh, Buddhist texts, the Lankavatara Sutra. 
um, which is one of the classic texts around understanding consciousness and uh, and who we are. Um, it's a so that's that's on my shelf right now. <laughs> uh, last question: How do people get in touch with you if uh, so they wished, or so you wish, actually? You know, thank you for that. Zenleader.global uh, takes them. Zenleader.global takes them to our website where they can contact us, and um, uh, that uh, it also takes them to the kind of programs that we teach in leadership that follows the set of principles you and I have, have spoken about. So Zenleader.global. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Benjamin. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Check out our blog on www coconut-thinking.design. We've got a bunch of resources there and think thought pieces as well as other podcast episodes. Of course, you can check out www.intrepidednews.com, Intrepid Ed News, where we also have our podcast and some articles there and a lot of uh, fantastic and very thoughtful and disruptive writers. Um, please, if you like this uh, podcast, leave it five stars, uh, subscribe. And in the meantime, again, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Check us out on LinkedIn. In the meantime, until next time.